I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we discuss one of the most interesting constitutional issues of the week, and that involves the value and First Amendment status of anonymous speech. There is uh, no better example of the importance of debating anonymous speech than the question of donor disclosures. And that is an issue raised by a case uh, filed by the Center for Competitive Politics, which is a nonprofit based in Virginia that receives donations from supporters across the country, including some in the state of California. In California, nonprofits that raise money have to register with the state's registry of charitable trusts. They have to submit a copy of an IRS form which lists the names and contributions of significant donors. That is defined as people who give more than $5,000 in a single year. Uh, since 2008, the centers filed redacted versions of this form, removing the names and addresses of its donors. But in 2014, the California Attorney General, Kamala Harris, ordered the center to send in an unredacted version. The center filed a lawsuit, and that led to a request just last week for emergency relief from the Supreme Court. Joining me to discuss this fascinating case and the First Amendment implications more broadly are two of the leading experts in the country in this field. Anthony Johnston is an associate professor at the University of Montana School of Law, where he teaches and writes about state and federal constitutional law. He also participated in a wonderful traveling town hall debate co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society and the National Constitution Center in Boston earlier this month. That was about the Citizens United case, and his co-debater in that case was John McGinnis. Uh, his co-debater today is Alan Dickerson, who is legal director of the Center for Competitive Politics. Uh, there, Alan leads the center's nationwide litigation efforts. He has argued on behalf of the Center for Competitive Politics in this case. Alan, this is your case, uh, so why don't we start off with you. Tell us about the lawsuit and what the constitutional issues it raises involve. Oh, thank you. And it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, so the case, I think your your introduction was uh, was very good and very fair. It involves a question of whether or not information that's provided to the IRS for one purpose can then be basically commandeered by state attorneys general for another purpose. And in, in a sense, the constitutional question is one of one of exactly where the, the sort of where the default understanding of anonymous association lies. It's been our understanding and the understanding of many you know, commentators and, and observers that one of the hard-fought victories of the civil rights era and a line of cases uh, starting with the NAACP versus Alabama case was that while there is not obviously an absolute right to associate anonymously, that there is a, a, a presumption that when people get together and associate with themselves, that the membership and donor lists of those organizations are not subject to government scrutiny unless the government can meet some sort of heightened constitutional scrutiny to show that it needs this information for a particular purpose and that this having this information will, in fact, meaningfully advance that purpose. Part of what happened in this case is that, you know, in, in many sense, the factual question is, our view is that the Attorney General simply didn't justify her need for this. We understand why the IRS wants to know the major donors to charities and, and educational nonprofits, and that's because when individuals take a deduction on their individual tax returns, 
having this list from the charities allows the government to cross-reference, allows the IRS to cross-reference those two forms and catch fraudulent tax deductions. What we don't understand is why having this information given to the California Attorney General, and indeed all attorneys general, and by the, the thinking of the case, essentially any government official that asks, and allowing them to build those sort of databases meaningfully advances their interests in law enforcement in a way that subpoenas are more targeted, less constitutionally invasive uh, activities would. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, Anthony, we'll turn to the Citizens United angle in a second, but I'd like you to respond to Alan's point. He says that uh, California has no legitimate law enforcement issue in this information. Uh, the issue that Kamala Harris, Harris raised uh, uh, recently was that a nonprofit might be overvaluing uh, an in-kind donation like a painting, and this donation requirement, disclosure requirement, would allow law enforcement to find out uh, how much the painting was really worth. But Allen's group counters, well, they could find that out merely by, uh, they, they would know the, that the painting was uh, valued at an expensive rate, and after a little more due diligence, they could just get a subpoena for the name if they needed it. What's your response? Well, uh, thanks, Jeff, for having me, and good to discuss these interesting issues with Allen. I think it pays to back up a little bit and understand the attorney general, the state attorney general's historic role Going back about 500 years in English common law, supervising charitable trusts, that's the power that uh, General Harris asserts here. And uh, for about 500 years, and it was a practice that carried over from England to the States, attorneys general have had uh, the duty to stand in the shoes of the public with respect to charitable trusts and now nonprofit corporations. Uh, in order to conduct those supervisory duties, uh, attorneys general uh, generally require registration and reporting, not always disclosure. And in this case, this information, this donor information is not disclosed. Um, but in order for the attorney general to do this historic task of supervising the charitable organizations that operate in her state, um, some sort of registration and reporting is a longstanding practice in the states. And against that backdrop, um, looking at it from the state's angle and the attorney general's uh, longstanding duties in this area, uh, it is entirely uh, typical for an attorney general to request these, this sort of basic information about nonprofits operating in her jurisdiction. Um, uh, looking at it from the IRS's angle, um, just because the Attorney General, I think, to reduce the burdens on the regulated organizations, these charities, uses the same form and asks for the form that uh, these organizations file with the IRS, um, doesn't make it any sort of um, – doesn't uh, demean the state's basic interests in understanding uh, who and how charities operate in the state. And so I, I guess um, it's important to understand that, that backdrop to understand how fundamental the attorney general's supervision of a charity and its um, registry and its regular reports are to the attorney general's job. And that's, that's the case here. Great. Uh, Alan, a Anthony says uh, attorney generals for 500 years have uh, supervised a charitable trust. 
the, these names are not being disclosed to members of the public at large, uh, as in the Citizens United case, but merely to law enforcement for law enforcement purposes. Uh, tell us if you think there is a meaningful difference between the disclosure requirements in Citizens United and those here. And then more broadly, tell us about your organization, which has uh, had great success uh, challenging uh, restrictions on campaign finance in the courts. Tell us why you think that the disclosure requirements in the Citizens United case also violate the First Amendment. Yours is a completely consistent position. And that was a view that was embraced by Justice Thomas, I think, but by no other member of the Citizens United Court. Sure. And I mean, I think I, I certainly don't take issue with the fact that attorneys general have a, a supervisory obligation. Uh, the question, both in Citizens United uh, as regards to the Federal Election Commission, and also here is, I, I think fundamentally, is there something special about membership and donor lists? And our understanding, again, going back to the civil rights era, is yes. And is it, the situation is certainly worse, and the First Amendment harm to an organization is higher if the information is compulsively gathered and then made public. But the civil rights era cases did not necessarily involve the public dissemination of information. They involved the state's decision to get information and to build these sort of lists so that they could, I mean, I think the, the premise is that so that people could eventually go after the donors to organizations like the NAACP. Um, so, so I think both Citizens United and this case raised the question of exactly, one, is there a presumption under the First Amendment that people can, in the words of the NAACP case, associate with each other privately and conduct their private, you know, lawful business privately? Um, or is that, in fact, not a default assumption, and instead these sort of police powers that go back in time uh, prior to the first and should be seen as taking precedence? First of all, that. And second of all, the question of once we know whether there is, uh, and I think most people would intuitively think there is, uh, some sort of presumption that the First Amendment does protect private association, is there a carve-out specifically for certain types of political speech as opposed to general? So the Citizens United case is a campaign finance case, and that's a case where the Supreme Court said that at least in certain types of ads were run in certain proximity to elections, and this is still a matter of ongoing litigation, um, that it was fine to say that you know, donors could be disclosed for the funding of those particular political advertisements. And that goes back to the Buckley versus Vallejo opinion in 1976, which said that, yes, there is a default position that donors to organizations should be private, but that there's an exception for, for political speech of a certain type, for things that, that are trying to elect candidates to office. And if you can show that the speech and issue is being used to, or is intended to be used to elect candidates to office, then the government can meet a heightened constitutional burden to show that it needs to, per, it needs to puncture that presumption of the right era, and it can get past protections and get at the donors to the organization. A lot of what our case asks is the next step in that. What if, what what if your communication and your activities have absolutely nothing to do with elections and campaigns? Does the carve-out that Citizens United and Buckley announced from the general protections of the civil rights case, does that continue to apply only to election-related activity? Or is that now just sort of an ongoing premise that we're going to have in society? that you do not have a right to contribute in private or to associate in private, then, in fact, the burden is on you to show you'll be harmed in some way if you give this information to the government. And that's a lot of what's being fought over, both in Citizens United and here, is the question of, of what, what the sort of default position is. Is the default position the government has to bear the burden, or is the default position that the donor or the organization has to bear the burden? 
Great. Well, Anthony, tell us more about that carve-out, as Alan described it, in Citizens United. Uh, why was it that all justices, except for Justice Thomas, did say that disclosure was permissible in that case? And was that just a narrow carve-out for political speech, or do you understand it more broadly to apply to the uh, membership list in this case? Well, again, we'd want to ask, what are they being carved out of? And Alan has explained the, the strong civil rights era background of the right to uh, associational anonymity, we might call it, uh, that he is asserting in this case. Um, and that baseline was set in a series of cases involving the NAACP, most famously in a case where, um, uh, as, as Alan knows, the, uh, a state attorney general was uh, enforcing um, certain basic uh, state corporate laws, um, perhaps similar to uh, the way that uh, California is supervising its charities. But there, of course, is a big difference um, between those civil rights era cases involving the NAACP in Alabama and the uh, uh, registration of nonprofit organizations seeking um, uh, tax-exempt and public benefit status in states, and certainly um, organizations like Citizens United uh, engaged in uh, electioneering. Um, and that difference is simply the difference between uh, NAACP's uh, position in Alabama facing uh, harassment, um, groups like the Socialist Workers Party facing FBI investigations, uh, people losing their jobs, people having shots fired at them in those cases, direct harassment, and the situation of, uh, fortunately, uh, the great majority of associations and organizations, like Allen's, uh, that do not face any specific harassment. Um, so that really is the line that the court has drawn here and that the court has drawn historically. Uh, it's not a matter of a carve-out of disclosure for political activity or not. It's a matter of whether an organization is subject to uh, harassment. Of course, in Citizens United, where um, the court said the First Amendment interests in associating for expressive purposes are most important because uh, they are for the purposes of political speech, which is at the core of the First Amendment, even in that case, um, Citizens United, in Citizens United, Jeff, as you said, eight of the nine members of the court um, endorsed uh, a relatively robust form of disclosure in the federal electioneering law. Um, so it's not really a matter of carve-out at all, but just that where an organization cannot show harassment, um, specific examples of harassment, the court has historically been uh, very careful not to start drawing uh, lines against disclosure um, that would run quickly from Citizens United to um, the Center for Competitive Politics along to um, large public corporations and their shareholder lists and consumer protection disclosures and health-based disclosures and a, a, a large array of disclosures that um, we require organizations uh, to make. 
Um, so I think the line that the court has drawn, um, and it's not always easily uh, recognized, but the line seems to be based on whether a given organization can show a, a real threat of harassment. Great. Well, Alan Anthony has drawn a, a crisp line. He says if there's a risk of harassment with the disclosure, then the disclosure uh, might be uh, 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 not required. But if there isn't, it should be. Is it the position of the Center for Competitive Politics that a majority of the court was wrong in Citizens United to uh, allow disclosure requirements for corporate contributions? And if so, why do you agree with Justice Thomas that anonymous speech should be protected in that context? And 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 is Anthony right to say you would really allow an, an anonymous uh, speech in a broader range of contexts from consumer protection laws to, to health laws? Well, I think the difficulty is that, I mean, there, there are certain things that I think everyone who practices in, area, in this area of the law agrees on. And one of them is that, you know, Certainly an organization that can show a reasonable probability of threats, harassment, or for reprisal is entitled to a special dispensation, shall we say, from the standard rules of, of disclosure. But that's not the whole story. And the other part is that the Supreme Court was very clear in 1976 in Buckley versus Vallejo that compelled disclosure generally poses risks. And as a result, whenever the government wants to compel disclosure either publicly or privately, of information uh, involving associational liberties, it has to show a good reason. And I think that's the difficulty with the, the parade of horribles, um, you know, to consumer protection laws or, you know, shareholder um, registration or things of that nature, is that no one is arguing that there is an absolute right to anything. What's being argued is that the government has to show some, make some sort of showing that it in fact needs this information, that it's not just an attempt to build some sort of database which could be abused in the future, maybe, or might be abused by certain office holders and not others. So I think that the fact that the Supreme Court has said that you can only get disclosure if you survive exacting scrutiny is the important part of the case law, and in many ways the clearest part of the case law. And a lot of what we're arguing is simply that that hasn't been shown in this case. They can't meet that, that heightened scrutiny the Supreme Court has implied. As to uh, Justice Thomas and Citizens United, I mean, I think it would be our position that, that Justice Thomas was correct in that, um, but not necessarily for the, the easy 30-second reason. Uh, if you go back to the, the beginning of the campaign finance sort of era, um, even before Buckley versus Flair, during the, civil, during the, you know, the Nixon administration, when all sorts of uh, terrible and documented things were going on, you had a number of civil society groups uh, that were were talking about President Nixon and, and calling for his uh, calling for his resignation or impeachment, and these were groups that were gone after by the Justice Department um, for for political activity. And there were a number of cases uh, leading up to Buckley and, and then going into Buckley, which said, "No, we, we need to draw a line between certain types of the phrase Buckley uses is unambiguously campaign related." activity and everything else. So I think that Thomas is probably correct in divining that line um, on the facts of the case. Uh, but again, that's, that's just another way of reformulating the fact that there is this presumption uh, in favor of private association and that the carve-outs have been, have been narrow. And, and on, on the point of you know, threats, harassment, and reprisal, our view is that what, that only kicks in once you've already survived exacting scrutiny. 
So if you're in a new area of the law, if you have a new rationale for asking for donor membership list, then you still have to survive that heightened constitutional scrutiny. But once, once the government survives that scrutiny, you still have the right to come forward if you're going to be individually or as a group threatened or harassed. So I think it's sort of a, it's a three-step process, not a two-step process. And the line is actually drawn at the exacting scrutiny level and not at the level of whether or not you're facing concrete threats. Interesting. Uh, Anthony, is Alan correct to describe the test as he does? And more broadly, has the court been too relaxed in protecting anonymous speech? Uh, the Center for Competitive Politics uh, cites the John Doe case where a majority of the Supreme Court uh, rejected a challenge to a Washington law, which uh, required the disclosure of names of people who'd signed a referendum petition to challenge uh, a Washington state law that extended benefits to same-sex couples. Justice Thomas dissented and said that uh, people who signed the petition might, in fact, be subject to reprisal, and, and news reports suggested that some, in fact, were. So is, is the court uh, drawing the line in the right place? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the court, um, with... Uh, only rare exceptions uh, has drawn the line um, in deference to uh, disclosure requirements of, of various kinds. Now, whether that's enough, um, well, first of all, in the cases where there is um, a showing of uh, a real risk of chilling speech through harassment of members, uh, the court is clear that that anonymity is protected as a matter of uh, First Amendment expressive association. Um, so uh, that line is the right line, and I think Alan and I agree on that. I guess the next step is, where else has the court drawn these lines? Well, it has done so famously in a case that um, actually did not come up much during this litigation, uh, a case involving the uh, unfortunate prosecution by Ohio of a... Uh, uh, Mrs. McIntyre, um, for pamphleting around a school bond in Ohio. And in that case, um, and this is perhaps where Citizens United ties in a little bit again, in that case, the court also recognized a limited right to anonymous speech um, based on our tradition of uh, individual pamphleteering. And so the court has also drawn a line uh, uh, there that even if an individual can't show a risk of harassment, uh, individuals uh, also have rights to anonymous speech. And um, there's a good reason to track that all the way back to um, long traditions around the time of the First Amendment, that individuals could uh, write and be published anonymously. Um, and so that line is there. Where the court has been unwilling to recognize a right to anonymous uh, association is, um, in what Justice Ginsburg said in her concurrence, these larger circumstances. Once you get past the lone pamphleteer or the Socialist Workers Party, where you have uh, big, successful uh, groups, as Jeff notes, Allen's group has been enormously successful in, in executing its uh, mission of um, uh, critiquing campaign finance laws. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce, um, all sorts of large groups like that. Uh, the court has been much less willing to extend First Amendment protection there, and that's probably right. At a very basic level, if uh, the if a state or Congress draws the disclosure line in the wrong place, 
Um, these are big organizations that can go and get the law changed and have the law drawn in another place. Alan and I might well agree that as a policy matter, um, we may not want to um, have uh, certain disclosures um, for de minimis activities or draw the lines in particular places. But um, given that we're past the area of harassment of um, minority political groups, given that we're past the point of uh, Mrs. McIntyre and her individual pamphleteering, given that we're dealing with uh, big, sophisticated operations um, that have uh, a voice in our democracy and can change the disclosure laws, um, there's no reason to think that the court is going to be better at drawing those lines than, um, than a uh, legislature or Congress. Great. Well, Alan, uh, Anthony has put the McIntyre case on the table. Uh, that was a case in which uh, the majority of the court in 1998 said uh, allowing dissenters to shield their identities frees them to express critical minority views. Anonymity is a shield from the tyranny of the majority. Thus exemplifies the purpose behind the Bill of Rights to protect unpopular individuals from retaliation at the hand of an intolerant society. Uh, that was a decision that emphasized the interest of individual pamphleteers uh, from uh, majority retaliation. But there was a dissent in that case from Justice uh, Anthony Scalia, who said that uh, anonymity would allow people to shield wrongdoing from the government. Justice Scalia is ordinarily viewed as a great originalist. Uh, what does what in your view? What did the framers of the First Amendment think about anonymity? Obviously, they wrote anonymously as. Uh, when they wrote the Federalist Papers, Madison and Hamilton describing themselves as Publius. But how broadly was the principle of anonymity that they enshrined, uh, and was it limited, as the McIntyre Court said, to individual pamphleteers? Well, I think the, the Publius example is, is a good one. And just um, just, just to take a just, – just on a personal basis, I have to throw John Jay back into the list of authors. But, you know, you have a situation there where three people are writing anonymously under the same name. Um, that looks a lot more like an association. I mean, to this day, as as you both well know, the the authorship of certain of those papers is still consist is still contested. Uh, it's a question of historical scholarship where one individual's writing began and another individual's writing ended, and that that's one of the points of association. You see this in again in the civil rights era cases where you know it's not just you know the danger of, of harassment; it's the fact that effective political speech, as as they said, you know, is an undeniably uh, enhanced by association. So in, in a sense, it's a question, one, of what you think the role of associational speech is, and second, sort of, I guess, your view of history. Um, on the first point, I, I think our view would be that it's not enough, and it's not a proper reading of the First Amendment, to protect only those people who can't have an impact. Um, you know, people who are putting, who are seated, standing on street corners, and people who are, who are pamphleting in their neighborhoods may have an impact at the margins. But as we saw in the civil rights era and as we've seen today, real social change happens through organizations. And that being the case, being that effective political advocacy should be what's protected by the First Amendment and not some sort of veneer, um, some sort of feel-good veneer. Uh, that, in fact, you know, associational liberties are, are in many ways the core, uh, even if there is this additional you know, sort of outsider carve-out that also exists in the case law. And in terms of one sense of history, uh, I think that I think in many ways you'll you'll see a disagreement between people on whether or not we're we're past these points in history. I think the framers took a very long view of history, 
Uh, they had in front of them examples of what they would have considered virtuous republics that fell for one reason or another. Um, I think they would have thought that uh, a rule that protected groups that were presently the subject of, of either social or government-sponsored uh, action uh, and did not protect new groups that could never possibly make that showing but might become controversial in the future, uh, or groups that are currently non-controversial but might again become controversial in the future, I think they would have said that's a bad line, that you have to take the long view and that allowing the government to build lists um, of groups, of individuals, of, of how people come out on a very granular level in their political views is dangerous. And that's, this is why you have the opposition to licensing regimes um, in, in the First Amendment context very early on in the Republic. And, you know, in many ways why the revolution was fought in some ways over the need to, you know, the need to, to go through the government in order to speak and publish. Um, wonderful. Well, uh, Anthony, some, some strong historical claims. First, that the revolution was fought over anonymous speech. Undoubtedly true, given the fact that it was the anonymous speech of people like John Wilkes, who criticized King George III, that led to the most important Fourth Amendment case of its era and indeed shaped the language of the, the Fourth Amendment itself. And then Alan goes on to say that the Federalist Papers themselves were a form of protected association because it was three anonymous framers, not one. Do you agree with his claim that there is an associational uh, element in the framers' concern about protecting anonymous speech? And do you agree with his suggestion that that associational element is broad enough to protect groups such as corporations and nonprofits, as well as political dissenters? Well, we're touching on one of the uh, great debates between the court's uh, two self-identified originalists in McIntyre between uh, Justices Thomas and Scalia, uh, where Justice Thomas is dissenting in McIntyre as he dissented in Citizens United and as he dissented in the um, marriage referendum case from Washington, Doe v. Reed, on disclosure, and Scalia has taken the other side on all of those, also claiming an originalist uh, pedigree uh, for his position. Um, I'd agree with Alan that there is an associational right, and in fact, that if you uh, looking at history, uh, not just the history around the framing, but uh, also the history of abolition and the important history around uh, the 14th Amendment, and the history and interpretation sense has recognized protections for these expressive associations, um, but always as a matter of um, of degree and um, never uh, um, developing a clear rule that uh, government must always um, justify in a specific case its uh, general regulatory interest in requiring uh, reporting, either in the campaign finance um, context or outside of it. I think the real difference between uh, um, Justice Thomas's reading and Justice Scalia's reading of the original meaning of the First Amendment, and perhaps a little bit of the difference between Allen's and my uh, reading of uh, the First Amendment, is what the um, original sin uh, around the time of the framing was. Um, was it anonymity per se, or was it politically motivated persecution, viewpoint discrimination uh, against one side by another? Um, 
I think, uh, again, looking at the NAACP cases um, and the other areas that uh, where the court has recognized protection for expressive association against disclosure, um, those are properly cases where what seems to be going on is the government is taking sides. It is engaging in uh, viewpoint discrimination. It is targeting people because of um, the positions they're taking, because of what they're saying, which is um, a cardinal sin under the First Amendment. Um, in these other cases where you're dealing with generally applicable uh, reporting and disclosure laws, and there's not evidence of harassment either targeting by the legislature or targeting by the executive in the law's enforcement, um, it becomes much harder to draw these lines of when people have expressive associational rights and don't, just as it becomes very hard to draw the lines of what rights um, corporations might have been said to have had uh, around the framing and translate that to today. And that's where, at least on the disclosure side, um, I think the court has properly um, taken a cautious approach to identify the areas where the First Amendment risks are greatest, where there's viewpoint discrimination, harassment, um, but not uh, get involved in uh, protecting from uh, generally applicable reporting and disclosure requirements all manner of, of other uh, associations, corporations, and organizations that modern society, um, um, uh, they're now active in modern society. Great. Uh, Alan, uh, Anthony has thrown down fighting words for an originalist. He says there's a debate between Justice Scalia and Thomas on this question. Uh, and in his view and, and uh, Justice Scalia's views as well, the framers are more concerned about uh, politically motivated harassment and viewpoint discrimination, not protecting anonymous speech per se. What is your response? I think generally I would agree with that. Um, again, and I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that when how little is being asked for in these cases. Uh, it, it's not a request for a general... It is a request for a general right, but not for one that the government can't possibly get past. Uh, I think part of the difficulty is that, you know, so there's a suggestion of, you know, whether or not the, the, the court has waded into particular cases of of donor disclosure versus, you know, sort of general governmental interests. And I think that's right. I think it's true that, you know, the government can show an interest to a range of generally applicable, um, generally applicable donor requirements uh, and disclosure rules and registration rules and things of that nature. But that still needs to be a showing that's made. I mean, part of the difficulty is that part of the difficulty of, of a serious attempt at originalism is that history is difficult. It's, it's evidence-based. It's based upon whatever survives to the present. It's, uh, it's lost in some sense in time. It has to be filtered through changing mores in society. And so, you know, there is that element of, of conflict in how you read those, those antecedents. I think the one thing that both originalists and, in fact, many non-originalists on the court would agree, however, is that if the First Amendment had a purpose, it was to prevent the government from, from viewpoint discrimination, but also from, from gathering the tools for viewpoint discrimination. Um, and I think that's what we're talking about now. It's not whether or not, you know, Attorney General Harris is interested in viewpoint discrimination. That certainly has been proven, and I would never accuse her of that without evidence. Um, but rather whether or not her or her successors and every other Attorney General in the United States can be trusted with a database based on this information, and whether they can make a showing sufficient to take that risk. 
Wonderful. Well, let's have one more round, uh, gentlemen, and then it'll be time for closing arguments. Uh, Anthony, uh, Allen has said that he agrees with Justice Thomas's position in Citizens United that the disclosure requirements in campaign finance laws uh, may be constitutionally vulnerable. Uh, what would happen? What would the practical consequences be for campaign finance if a majority of the court came to embrace Justice Thomas's view? That's not clear because um, as a dissenter, it's much easier to lay down absolute terms and not come to grips with the consequences of uh, those terms. Um, um, so uh, if he is indeed taking an absolute view, um, as he seems to be in these cases, that disclaimer and disclosure requirements um, are um, presumptively unconstitutional for political speech. Um, well, where does that take us? Well, uh, we've seen in one of the things that Citizens United was about was how important the government's interest is in uh, requiring disclosure so that voters can have this very basic um, constitutional power of self-government. That's a really, really important interest. Uh, what happens now when we take it, say, to Allen's case, and we say, well, you know, the attorney generals of the states have been doing this for several hundred years, and while they say it's critical to um, the public's trust in charitable organizations, um, they haven't had any really bad scandals recently, and they can always clean up with a subpoena at the back end. Um, there are least restrictive means to do it. So, no, the attorney general doesn't get that information. And that's not particularly, you know, Alan talked about granular information. We're talking about $5,000 donors and up. Um, and then you go on to, um, well, what about uh, the uh, oil company that is um, you know, using, uh, and you have a, a, a county that wants to know what's in their fracking fluid? Um, why, why can't we get some disclosure of, of that? Well, the scientific risks are kind of unknown, and you haven't shown any clear threat to public health, um, and then so on and so forth. Securities laws, consumer protection laws, um, all, all the way down. Uh, so that's what's unclear. Maybe Justice Thomas's position is that um, only campaign finance disclosure is presumptively unconstitutional. Um, now, in, in, in that case, I think um, Justice Scalia provides a view of that, that vision. Um, it, it's uh, without requiring people to stand up in public for their political acts, he wrote in the Doe case, right? We lack civic courage. Without civic courage, democracy is doomed. Maybe it's just limited to that. That would be a, a sad enough picture to draw. But um, when you think about how important disclosure in campaign finance is, and how perhaps relatively less important disclosure in other contexts is, you really see that this uh, has no stop. Um, and it would call into question a broad array of uh, heretofore unquestioned, really for at least a century, um, modern reporting and disclosure requirements that we have uh, come to expect our government to um, stand by. Alan, uh, the case that you filed is called Center for Competitive Politics versus Kamala Harris. What is the Center for Competitive Politics position? Do you believe that all disclosure requirements, including uh, financial and regulatory disclosures, uh, are unconstitutional, as Anthony suggests? 
or would you stop with campaign finance disclosure requirements? We, we would say that there's a distinction between different types of information. There's a difference between privacy of donors to the organizations that are funding civil society and that are engaging in the lifeblood of deliberative discourse that makes a democracy possible, and these other sort of regulatory issues like, you know, how much an executive is paid or what goes into fracking fluid. And I think that that's a, that's a distinction the founders would have recognized and then most, that, that fits pretty, pretty easily into most people's understanding of the First Amendment. Great. All right. It's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Anthony Johnston, what is at stake in this case, Center for Competitive Politics versus Kamala Harris, and if the Supreme Court decides to intervene and to overturn the Ninth Circuit's decision that California's uh, disclosure requirements do not violate the First Amendment, what would the consequences be? I think the consequences uh, would be, uh, as Alan has argued, um, to put the, to the government the burden of uh, justifying um, every reporting disclosure requirement, which uh, might plausibly be said to infringe on an organization's expressive uh, association. Uh, membership lists uh, certainly are at the core of that, and there are an array of um, legitimate, substantial, even compelling regulatory reasons. Um, we might want laws that require uh, disclosure of uh, membership lists, as long as it doesn't involve the uh, real threat of harassment that uh, groups have shown in the past. Um, but once uh, you turn the burden around, as Alan is asking, require the state to justify um, its reporting and disclosure requirements, it's hard to see how that's limited just to membership lists, um, because the court itself has suggested uh, that, I think Alan's right, the First Amendment absolutely protects expressive association, but the court will look to any burden uh, asserted um, on an organization's expressive association uh, once it is, um, once that claim is uh, raised. And if you can assert a burden without any proof of specific harassment or real actual chilling of uh, an organization's speech, um, if the Center for Competitive Politics can do that in this case, um, uh, that principle would call into question a vast array of governmental uh, reporting requirements um, uh, well beyond uh, just the narrow membership list question that Allen's group presents here. And that would be a real cause for concern uh, because uh, in this area, the courts um, are not good at drawing uh lines as brightly as maybe they should be and um, do not always have um, uh, the appreciation of uh, regulatory interests in reporting and disclosure that um, states and the federal government has. Um, and uh, it's important that, that we value reporting disclosure. As Alan says, uh, information is important. We should have a First Amendment rule that encourages the generation of information how you strike that balance should be struck in an individual case based on actual benefits and burdens and not based on a categorical 
rule that would force the government to prove uh, every time it seeks disclosure or reporting of um, membership lists or other information available um, from a, an organization like Allen's. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Alan, the last word is to you. What is at stake in the case Center for Competitive Politics versus Harris, and why do you think it is important for the Supreme Court to intervene and to overturn the Ninth Circuit's decision? I mean, the case presents both uh, a, a narrow and a profound question. Uh, it's, it's narrow in the sense that our position has never been that it's impossible to, to, to appropriately demonstrate a need for donor information. As I said at the beginning of this, uh, this conversation, the IRS's use of this information is a good example. If you don't like to give the IRS this information, they could come back and say, look, we need it because we use it in this particular manner to double-check for fraudulent deductions. Fine. That's not a difficult conversation to have or a difficult burden to carry. Uh, on the other hand, it is profound in the sense that this isn't a case where the Attorney General put up a bunch of evidence about her need for this. This is a case where her position was, I don't have to give you any explanation until you can prove that your group will concretely be harmed. And I think if that's the rule, if the rule is that there is a general presumption under the First Amendment that government officials may have dragnet requests for donors and membership list organizations, and that they need make no showing in order to have it, and that instead it is on the groups, some of whom may be lightly financed, some of whom may be badly lawyered, some of which may have no lawyers at all, um, some of which may not yet be controversial, but may be in the future. Um, I think that decision to, to shift the burden of proof is, uh, is very difficult to square with the First Amendment, which was clearly concerned with governmental and not private action. Thank you so much, Alan Dickerson and Anthony Johnson, for a truly illuminating debate about donor disclosure and the value of anonymous speech. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a bunch of thrilling town hall debates coming up, including the next in our series of traveling town hall debates co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, and that will be in New York on June 16th. And the topic is resolved. NSA metadata collection violates the Fourth Amendment. Uh, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.